We'll see if I have enough room on this little thing without tipping it over. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have once again given us opportunity to meet together, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things, to the glory of God, in the joy of all peoples. And we praise you, Father. This is your church, Calvary Bible Church being a very, very, very small part of your great, big, glorious church, which is growing in the world. Not so much, perhaps, in America, but all over the other continents. The gospel is going forth and bearing fruit. Churches are being established. Elders are being ordained. Leadership pastors put in place. And Father, we, um, we especially this morning delight in this day because of what will take place at the end of the service. And so we thank you for it, and we ask you, Father, even on this occasion, as we look very specifically at a practice that you have called us to perform, or at least modeled it for us in your word, and that even now the gospel would be clear and that perhaps you would save some. We love you and we praise you for your word. Every word of yours is true, and it is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness. And we are so blessed, and you have been so kind to give it to us. Help us now, Father, to understand it in truth as the Apostle Paul intended it to be understood. And we give you praise and thanksgiving in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen and amen. And I just remembered to turn off my cell phone, and maybe you could turn off yours as well. Well, this morning, we, uh, this is a special day for Calvary Bible Church. It's not every day or even every year that we have the opportunity to ordain a young man for gospel ministry. And today is that day for us. By God's grace, we will ordain Keith Christensen to gospel ministry. And um, you know he's been ministering here for some time. Keith didn't start out here at Calvary Bible Church, but he is from Texas, and he got here as fast as he could. Uh, Two years ago, Keith joined the pastoral staff team, and it didn't take long for us to see that this young man is especially blessed and gifted And having the opportunity for the last two years of watching his life, watching his interaction with his wife and his children and with my children and uh, your children and so many others, um, we have no doubt that this young man has been called to the ministry. He has no doubt that God has called him into ministry. And, um, And he can express to you very clearly why. And I'll tell you why. And I'll tell you why I affirm it. Number one, he has a desire to minister to people, minister the Word of God to people, bring the Word of God to bear on people's uh, lives. And secondly, uh, he has been affirmed in that, uh, not only here but in other churches where, where the leadership has the responsibility to say yes or no to young men who want to stand up and teach and preach. And consistently over the years, men have said yes to Keith. We want you to teach and preach. And the third thing is that, um, what was the third thing, Keith? <laughs> <laughs> Opportunity, that's the one I was thinking of. Um, and I, you know, I try to tell young men this all the time. Uh, pay attention to the providence of God in your life. Because the men in your life will either open the door of opportunity or they will close it. And if they're closing it all the time, Maybe that's, maybe that's something for you to consider. But if, but if the leaders in local churches are opening opportunity for you to speak, to bring the word of God to bear on people's lives, that says something as well. And so we've seen that in, in Keith's life. We've seen him uh, obey what Paul told Timothy. We've looked at this earlier in 1 Timothy when he commanded Timothy to focus on being an example to the believers in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. And I'm here to tell you this morning, all of that is true of Keith Christensen. And we love this family. And uh, we didn't quite know what we were getting when we got you guys, but we are so blessed that the Lord gave you to us for a time. We don't know how long that time is going to be, but we want to keep you as long as we can. Our text for this morning seems providentially appropriate once again. 
because 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25 is where Paul talks about how the household of God relates to their elders, the leadership of their church. How does the household of God, that is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth, how do those people relate? How should they relate to the elders in their church? And you remember back in chapter 3, we're in chapter 5 now, in chapter 3, Paul lays out the qualifications for elders so that if you aspire to be an elder and you don't meet the qualifications, then you should not be made an elder, no matter how gifted a man may be. In this passage, Paul, however, has something else in mind. As we learned earlier in our study of this letter, it seems there were at least a couple of elders in the church of Ephesus who were causing serious problems. When Paul talks about the... um, the false teachers in the group, it sure seems to me that he was speaking specifically of a couple of men who had attained eldership somehow and were teaching false doctrine. And I think that accounts for why there is so much throughout the first letter of Paul to Timothy relative to elders and the qualifications and what they should be doing and what they should not be doing and how the church is to relate to them and keep them accountable in all of those things. Timothy had been sent to the church of Ephesus to straighten things out. So it should be no surprise to us that Paul spends such a large amount of time instructing us about God's plan for elders. In this passage, Paul teaches us how the church body is called to relate to these elders. Namely, we are to esteem them, shield them, censure them, and assess them. We are to esteem them, shield them, censure them, and assess them. Now, we don't have printed notes for you this morning, so you'll have to maybe just write it in the bulletin as you go. But these are the four things that I want to cover in the next several minutes. Let's talk about the first one. How does a church body relate to uh, their elders? Number one, they should esteem them. In the previous passage, you remember... Paul was concerned about honoring the widows. Now, listen to uh, this verse. In fact, before we do that, why don't we just stand and read this whole passage? In honor of God's word, let's stand and, and read this text of Scripture. And we'll be reading 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Let the, elder who, the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudice. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them into judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. In the previous passage, as I said, Paul was concerned about honoring the widows. Now he is concerned that we honor the elders of the church as well. And you'll remember that when we talked about honoring widows, we we came to understand that what Paul meant by that was that there was a particular list of ministering widows who were older than age 60. He's explicit with that who would be kind of this group of ministering widows, and that honoring them means that they would be supported financially, that they would be helped and ministered to financially. The church would financially support those who qualified for the list of ministering widows. And the same is true here for elders. Not that all of the elders would be um, honored in that way, but that all the honor, all the elders should be honored, 
And there are some among the elders who should be honored with financial support. Now notice Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. In the churches that Paul planted, there would be men with various gifts who would be called to serve in the role of elder. All of them had to be apt to teach. Chapter 3 says that's one of the qualifications. All of them had to shepherd I mean, that's, that's their very title. Poiman means pastor or shepherd. They had to be actively shepherding the body. But some of them would be especially gifted in teaching and preaching and would therefore do most of the preaching and teaching. These are the specific elders that Paul has in mind. All of the elders were worthy of honor. All of the elders are worthy of honor. But those who labor at teaching and preaching should be given double honor. That is, they should not only be looked upon with respect and esteem, but they should be freed up to minister the word of God as, for lack of a better term, a career ministry. This would be their job. This would be their labor that would also support their family financially. Now, the word labor here is... uh, Koriao, or koriao, and it means to exert oneself until he is worn out, weary, or faint. This is the word the disciples used. You remember when Jesus was calling his disciples, and and, uh, they were just starting into the ministry, and and there was uh, Peter and and the guys out on their boat, and and they they went fishing. They'd fished all night, and they caught nothing. And Jesus appears, remember, and says, throws the net on the other side of the boat. Um, This is one of those events recorded for us in Luke 5. And the disciples that, that day said to Jesus that morning, Lord, we labored all night long and caught nothing. That word labor is the same word that Paul's using here. We labored all night long. You see, beloved, the only way to understand the sense of a text of Scripture so that it can be presented in in terms of the meaning for which the, the original author intended for it to be understood is by hard labor at teaching and preaching and study. To become a pastor, frankly, is to enter the life of a student. And this is what we tell our young guys who think they want to Uh, give their life into the ministry of of, uh, serving a local church. This is not about you playing games. It's not about, you know, organizing volleyball events or any of that stuff. This is about being a faithful student of the Word of God. To enter pastoral ministry is to enter the life of a student who labors over the very words of God. It requires one to be immersed in the text all the time. Uh, I have friends who tell me, you always have a book in your hand. It seems like you're always in study. If we need to meet, you have to squeeze it in between study time. And that's right. And that's the way it should be. Even on vacation, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's always this weight, this pressure. Maybe I should get up early and just try to get an hour of study in. This is the life of a pastor. This is not a Saturday evening activity on the whole. It is a kind of labor that begins on Monday morning and doesn't end until the sermon is done. Uh, There are aspects even of preaching. We're in the midst of preaching, even this morning. I will remember something that I hadn't written down, and the Spirit will use that to help me communicate something that even though I didn't prepare to say it. People ask me, when do you finish preparing for your sermon? And I typically say about 11.45 Sunday morning, it's finally done, and it is what it is. The call to pastoral ministry is a call to lead. It's a call to oversee the flock, to be an example for the flock, to shepherd the flock, and then in the midst of all of that, make sufficient time to wrestle with the scriptures until you understand a text well enough to stand before God's people and say, thus says the Lord. It's not our job to stand up here and tell you the latest thing happening in politics and what you should think about it. It's not my job to give you the latest trends or to be trendy. I'm a lot of things. (laughs) No one has ever accused me of being trendy. Unless it's my tie, but it's not. 
That's not our calling. We're not called to be clever. We're not called to entertain. And you know what? I, I just, just think one of these days when America hits the wall, what people are desperately going to be looking for is not the most clever and funniest guys in the pulpit, but the guys who were able to give answers from the Word of God. This is God's Word. You want to hear from God? Don't go to your closet and pretend to listen. Open the book and read. And ask God, speak, word of God, speak to me. Holy Spirit, use your word to speak to me. Tell me what you wanted the author of this particular book to say to the church and to say to me. Help me to understand it. Help me to be faithful to study it and to think hard on it. Paul understood the kind of labor that this requires. Not all elders are able to do this. And it's not because they don't have the capacity necessarily but it's because God has called them to be, you know, insurance uh, salesmen or, you know, F-14, they don't don't have the 14 anymore, F-35 builders or, you know, I don't know what God has called you to do, but God has given you a ministry and it's probably not full-time in a local church. There are only a few. There are only few who are given that responsibility. But all of us are called to minister All of us are called to serve. And when it comes to the preacher's responsibility, the primary preacher and teacher, or teachers, and we have have a couple here, um, the appropriate word to use is labor. Those who minister the gospel, here's what Paul is saying. This This is the point of this section of this text, that those who minister the gospel should make their living by the gospel. Those who minister the gospel should make their living by the gospel. That's what he means when he says in verse 18. Look at verse 18. You shall not muzzle the ox. Interesting, you know. I I haven't thought of myself as an ox before, but you shall not muzzle the ox as he treads the grain. Here are two quotations that, that Paul gives. You shall not muzzle the ox as he treads the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, where did he get these two statements? Well, the first one he got out of the law. He got it out of Deuteronomy, which is the second statement of the law back in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 25. Do not muzzle the ox as he treads the grain. The second quotation is from Jesus. In Matthew 10, verse 10, in Luke 10, verse 7, speaking of the disciples, you remember he sent the disciples out two by two, and he said, go into the village, announce that the king is coming, prepare the way, Um, the kingdom of God is at hand, find a faithful household, minister out of that household, stay there, eat what they give you, take the provision that they provide for you, for a laborer is worthy of his wages. And that's where... Jesus plays into this. This is not the only time that Paul speaks to this issue. If you could take a minute to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And Paul deals a little more extensively here, and he repeats this in different ways in his teaching throughout the New Testament. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 7 through 12. Are you there? Are you looking at your Bibles? This is Calvary Bible Church, where Bible is not just the center of our name, it's the center of life for us, right? And so look at your Bible now, 1 Corinthians 9, 7 through 12. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses. Here we go again. You shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Isn't that interesting? Even when God gave that law back in Deuteronomy, his primary concern wasn't the oxen, although that was a a veiled manifestation of his grace. Let the oxen eat, for goodness sake, while he's working. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, Paul says, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. 
If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this righteous, rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Now, Paul will say, in our case, we chose not to take advantage of that. We didn't want anybody saying that we were in the ministry for the money. We were establishing the gospel, establishing the very first churches. And so we declined receiving pay. But, again, Paul is teaching with regard to the others who would minister the gospel Those who preach and teach the gospel should earn their living by the preaching and teaching of the gospel. And when Jesus says the laborer is worthy of his hire, he's saying the same thing. Now, I belabor this point this morning for two reasons. First, because my role in this church is to help all of us understand the meaning of Paul's words. And if you're new here at Calvary Bible Church, then you just need to understand that the way we do that is we pick a book and we start with verse 1. And we just press on until we get to the last verse of the book. And it takes time. It takes time each Sunday. And it takes time in terms of months, and in a few cases, years, to get through an entire book. Because, listen, you shouldn't come to hear me. You shouldn't come to hear from me. You should come to hear from God. And that's why when you entered this morning and the, and the service began, we didn't start with singing. We started by reading the scriptures. We're here to hear from God. And so I belabor this point because this is the meaning of this text, this next set of verses. We need to understand this text as much as any other text. And perhaps by understanding these things, you'll be able to help other churches repent of not caring for and honoring their pastor as they should. So many churches act as if they were doing their pastor a favor by keeping him poor and never allowing him to wrestle with the potential temptation of loving money. You know what? You don't have to be rich to be a lover of money. You can be poor and be an even more lover of money. That's not the issue. Everybody has their responsibility. The pastor has a responsibility to serve the congregation in a certain way. And the congregation has a responsibility to serve their pastor by making sure he doesn't have to worry about whether he's going to be able to pay the bills next month. But he's free. He's free of that that need um, so that he can focus on the ministry of the word. And secondly, I belabor this point so that I can boast in Calvary Bible Church in this regard. I can say in my 23 years at Calvary Bible Church, holding different positions here, that uh, you have been enormously generous to my family and to the others who have served on staff. We have never lacked for what we needed. And the times that we complained, perhaps, about our lack to one another, it was none other than faithless sin. You have always been gracious, and abundantly so. And I praise God for this church. I praise God for this church. Uh, I praise God for the personnel committee and the finance committee and for the elders who make sure that the needs, not only of the pastors, but the administrator and the worship leader and others who are serving here are remunerated well Um, in order to free us up so that we can focus not on a job somewhere else, but we can focus entirely on ministering to this flock and studying God's word. So all of that is to say that the elders who teach and preach should be honored in the local church. And so the message there is, how does does the local body relate to their elders? Number one, esteem them. Esteem them. And I don't mean just me. I don't mean just me and Keith, who are the primary preachers, teachers here, but I mean all the elders. And there are, there are five of us, and soon there'll be four, and soon again, and there'll be five, and I'll tell you about that later. But um, honor them. And there are so many ways to honor them. You can tell them that you appreciate them. You can send them a note. I got a note this past week from a brother who, who was on an airplane. He's part of this body. He was leaving, 
And I don't know what he was listening to. I do know what he was listening to. He was listening to a John MacArthur question and answer on his phone. He said, I'm on an airplane headed to Louisiana and just wanted to say, Pastor, thank you. Thank you. And to the church, thank you. Uh, You guys have ministered to him. He might be embarrassed if I tell you his name. But you all have ministered to him so much. And he praises God for you. You know, that's that's encouraging. That's esteeming. Um, So all of that to say, you should esteem your elders. Okay? Number two, shield them. Shield them. How should we relate to the elders? We should shield them. Look at verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Every pastor or elder knows that to lead is to feel like you've been born with a target on your back, a tattooed target that cannot be removed. Um, There will always be someone, not always, there will frequently be someone eager to make accusations about a person's, about an elder or the pastor's character or qualifications or teaching or his inability to lead wisely or biblically. And, And certainly in the church of Ephesus, there was a lot of that flying around. And frankly, some of it was even deserved, but handled poorly. But Paul understands that Many, if not most of the accusations leveled against an elder or pastor who's seeking to be faithful is either false or it's overblown or it's handled poorly and therefore overblown. To combat this, Paul simply reminds Timothy of Jesus' teaching on the subject. Matthew 18, commonly referred to as the passage on church discipline. Church discipline is not a biblical term. You could call it corrective discipleship if you wanted to. It's a kinder, gentler name for it. Church discipline works too. It was a teaching that was rooted not just in Jesus. Jesus was getting it from somewhere else. Jesus got it from the book of Deuteronomy again. It's amazing how much of the book of Deuteronomy is carried over into the New Testament. But the law of God clearly stated that a charge against an elder or any Christian should not be admitted or taken seriously except by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And by the way, Jesus was a victim of this. They charged him falsely based originally not on any evidence, no witnesses. And they finally got two guys to make up a story and come and get their story right. The text tells us every time they brought in a witness, he would... He would say something different than the other witnesses they brought in. They finally got two charlatans to come in and to give the same story. And on that basis, then, they felt like they had fulfilled the law, even though they had violated it on every other point, and even here. And by the way, Deuteronomy again, thou shalt not bear false witness. One of the top ten, right? What's that about? It means when you go to court, or in any kind of formal setting where someone is being accused, you better not give a false witness. You better not try to hang someone or free someone illegitimately. Tell the truth. As George Knight explains, Paul's concern here is about the fair handling of an accusation against an elder. Because those in leadership are subject to scrutiny, criticism, and rumors, Paul cautions Timothy not to accept or acknowledge as correct an accusation or charge against them unless there are requisite, the requisite witnesses. Somebody has, to, somebody has to have evidence that a sin has been committed, and it has to be a biblical sin. It can't be, he hurt my feelings. Maybe your feelings needed to be hurt. Uh, you know, he didn't help me feel good about myself. Well, you shouldn't feel good about yourself. Um, Listen, there, there's, there's probably no such thing as false guilt. If you feel guilty, you are guilty. And you may not be guilty in, in terms of law, but you either broke a, a, uh, a, a clear teaching of Scripture or you violated your own conscience. And Paul deals with both, and both are to be taken seriously. And this, as I have said recently, is something that everyone who becomes a a member of Calvary Bible Church, is, it's emphasized to them relative to how do you deal with a person who has sinned. Namely, 
If ever an elder or a pastor or a staff member says or does or teaches something that causes an offense, and it doesn't have to be even in those categories, if there's just another member of the body who has caused an offense or has sinned against you, you should not grab your phone and call your girlfriend or your best friend down the road, call some friend on the phone, or share that offense on social media or even verbally with others. Don't form a team and go after that person. Listen, you're a sinner. Is that how you want your brothers and sisters to deal with you when you sin? Or would you rather have them be careful and persistent and yet not move too quickly to love them, to seek their good, to seek their restoration? We talk about the four stages of church discipline. Just because number one is number one doesn't mean you do it one time. You do it again and again and again. It means you confront the brother on their sin. And then you go back to ministering the fruit of the Spirit to him until you have another opportunity to go talk to them about their sin again. And you do that for a while until it's obvious that nothing's happening. That's when you go to step two and bring in other people. But even that has to be done very, very carefully, cautiously. Like you have a cracked egg and you just don't want to break it. Like, like you're carrying a baby in the backseat of your car. You're not going to drive recklessly. You're going to be careful. You're going to be loving. You're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Grace will prevail. God will have his way in that person's life. You don't have to exact judgment. That's not the call. It's restoration that we're after. And so we always tell our members, you know, and if you're not familiar with the membership forms, we, we want people to understand some things about our, our doctrine and teaching before they, they sign on, and mainly that's for their sake, for your sake. Um, we're going to teach and preach what we believe is true and, and hopefully consistent with our doctrinal statement. But um, there are a number of things that a person has to, has to initial. I've read the doctrinal statement, and I accept this. Maybe not agree with everything, but I accept it. And, and a lot of different things, but there's one thing that we actually talk about other than the testimony. We want to hear your testimony, how you know Jesus. That's, that's the core of the whole deal. But the one thing that we talk about every time is this. If you ever have a problem with another member of this church body, whether he's in leadership or not, remember the unity of the body is precious to Christ. The unity of the body is precious to the elders of this church. The unity of the body is precious to the membership of the church. And I'll tell you what, if you want a little personal attention from Pastor Dan, just cause a little disunity and you'll get a little FaceTime. We are passionate about this, brothers and sisters. We are passionate about this. Why? Because that's what God requires. This is what he clearly teaches in his word. We neglect it to our harm. And oh, how many churches have been harmed because they don't take these biblical commands seriously. And sin is never dealt with. Sin is never dealt with. We just overlook it. We let it go. And so it it grows. And, And nobody is warned. Nobody, you know, when I was a kid, my brother, he used to get in trouble with my mom and dad all the time. And I'd hear him in the other room and, <laughs> and with the requisite, oh, ooh, you know, and all that. And, uh, and me and my other siblings, we were in the other room going, all right, we're not, we're not doing that. <laughs> Whatever he did, we're, we're going to find out. We're not doing that. And that's what Paul's going to say here. It's so important that we handle disagreement offenses, those are going to happen. Sin, how many of you is not a sinner? How many of you in this room are not sinners? And uh, I can't see you down the hall, but there's probably someone down there raising their hand. (laughs) And you know what? After you confront the sin, if that doesn't bring repentance, Jesus makes a very clear prescription for what to do next and to do next and to do next. And if you feel like that's not specific enough, the elders can help with that bringing other biblical texts to bear, to guide us along the way. You see, unity in the church is precious beyond measure. 
This is, after all, your brother for whom Christ died that you're dealing with. This is your sister for whom Christ died that we're dealing with. That should mean something. It should should be more precious to you to restore that relationship with the Lord and with you than to be right and to be proven right in your accusation. And I can tell you that there is nothing in the body that Paul hated more. Paul has a name for such a person who causes such divisions. He calls them factious. And his prescription for dealing with a factious person is very direct. Writing to Titus, he bluntly says, Titus 2.10, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I might add, he says, reject the factious man after the first or second warning. Someone's causing division? This is not the same category of someone who has sinned and needs to be carefully led through a process. No, 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 no. Someone who's causing a faction, warn him once, warn him twice, kick him out. Invite him to leave, maybe we should say. Invite him to not come back anymore. Because the unity of the body is precious. There are just, I think, some people who have it in their DNA that whoever the leader over them is, they're the one to go after. And that's, that's just sin. And I say that not because that's happening a lot around here. It's not. Praise God, it's not. This is such a unified body. You know, we're talking about disunity here, and I know that's heavy, and it's, it's unsavory. So let me tell you something that's wonderful. We don't have that going on around here right now. Praise God, and it's been a long time since that's happened. And I think primarily because the Word of God is exalted at Calvary Bible Church. Amen? And I'm not just talking about my preaching and teaching. Everybody who teaches and and preaches around here has that same ideal. Now, you might be wondering, does this mean that uh, there should be no personal accountability for the elders? Uh, We were doing Calvary 101 one time, and uh, one of the ladies says, okay, so who are the elders accountable to? That's a good question. Is the sole duty of the church to the elders at Ephesus and the elders here, is their sole duty to esteem them and to shield them? Well, let's read the next verse, verse 20. And we're still in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. There it is. For those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. If the prescribed biblical process has been followed appropriately and the accusation against an elder or pastor has been found to be true, that he has genuinely sinned and he is persistent in that's, that's the term here, right? Not that he committed a sin and repented of it and it's done. Humble spirit, this isn't a big deal. I mean, all of us, right? All of us have that. But if this is a sin that is public or affects the church body or compromises his, his moral integrity and he's persisting in it, then he is to be rebuked publicly. Publicly. Again, we remember uh, that the first step listed by Jesus in Matthew 18 that he must be confronted personally first. And if he repents, then it's over, depending on the sin. And we all understand, do we not, that there are, there are certain sins that are so egregious that if substantiated would render that elder pastor disqualified from that office for life. I think far too often... Church, a church will have a pastor who is run off with a secretary or committed some act of immorality that's whatever it is. We see it in the news. Even the world knows that's a sham, right? And yet, and yet churches take that pastor and they say, um, let's smooth this over. Let's make sure everybody's happy. And then you get back up and start preaching again. Listen, If you're a lawyer or a lumberjack and you commit immorality, you should get some counsel. 
Man, you should work on putting your marriage back together and being more faithful and honoring the Lord in your marriage. And then go back to being a faithful lawyer or lumberjack. But if you're a pastor or an elder and you commit immorality, you run off with the secretary or whatever, then you ought to uh, get some counsel. Put your marriage back together. Figure out how to honor Christ in your home and then become a lawyer or a lumberjack. (laughs) Because your ministry in the church is over in terms of being an elder, pastor, overseer, all synonymous terms. I say that with fear and trepidation because I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner, and you know it too if you've been here for any length of time. But this is for our good, beloved. This is for the church's purity. And when a church is practicing church discipline like this, Um, there's a whole lot less sinning going on. Because what happens is exactly what Paul predicts. The others will fear. Wish we had time to go into the Old Testament and and to see how God initiated his law and then immediately demonstrated the gravity of disobeying the law. And he said it it was for the purpose. I mean, some people were stoned to death for their immorality. Why? text clearly says, so that all Israel would fear. Fear what? Fear sin and its consequences. And so it should be in the church. By the way, you remember Ananias and Sapphira? The church was growing, 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 growing. I mean, it went from 120 to 5,000 in one day, or 3,000, and then there was 5,000 in no time at all. It was just growing. I mean, it was a freight train running down the tracks like a lot of, uh, a lot of megachurches. I mean, they're just moving and they're growing and they're sending off other campuses and everything. Growing, growing. You would think, wow, that's good, that's good, that's good. Well, maybe. But then Ananias and Sapphira come along and God strikes them dead. And Luke tells us the community around the church, they respected the church But there wasn't hardly anybody joining anymore. (laughs) Why? Look, if you go to that church, man, your sin might be dealt with. And you know what? That's that's true. True. And that would be a good thing for you. You know why? Because sin is bad for you. Sin is like a cancer. It gets into your heart. It gets in... It gets into your behavior, gets into your thinking, and things start flying apart. Once you've become enslaved by sin, your life starts falling apart. Your marriage starts falling apart. Sin is the problem. It's not the solution. And so it needs to be removed with grace, with kindness, with mercy, with help, with biblical counsel. All of that, beloved, When there is an egregious moral failing on the part of a pastor or elder, you should not um, be ungraciously or unbiblically dealt with, but he should be required to resign. Indeed, it's necessary so that no, because he would no longer be above reproach. Paul's teaching us that in cases where a serious charge against a pastor or elder is verified, Verse 20, the other elders must rebuke him in the presence of all so that all will fear. And I take that to mean they will rebuke him in front of the church body so all the other elders will fear. And certainly the effects will be felt broadly among the congregation as well. And you know what? Praise God. That's never happened at Calvary. We've never had to have that happen before. Uh, Early on, there was an elder who was unqualified and he eventually... Recognize that and step down. Praise the Lord for that. It wasn't a moral failing. Um, but this applies to how we deal with sin generally. And you know what? If you're new to this church, I just got to tell you, we practice church discipline. We practice church discipline. You say, what does that look like? It looks like Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. You, you, Pastor, do you mean that you actually name people in front of the church body because of their sin? And my answer to that is, In my 23 years here, that has happened four times. 
four times because it hardly ever gets to that point. There really has to be hardness. There really has to, and the elders are saying, please give us a reason, give us any reason to stop the train. You know, you have three weeks before the Lord's table is coming up, and we're going to name you. Don't do that. Don't put us in the position where we have. Let's talk. Let's meet. Let's figure out how you can repent. No, no, no. It's only happened four times. You know what usually happens? Brother will walk up to another brother or sister, grab by the arm and say, hey, like, um, you know I love you, Right? When someone says that, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> and uh, remember, remember when we were having that Bible study and, and you told that joke? I, do you think that was honoring to the Lord? And they'll go, no. Thank you, brother. Thank you. And the other brother will say, you're welcome. Praise God. Let's keep on moving. That's it. That's corrective discipleship, right? It's church discipline. That's the way church discipline normally happens. And you do that with your children every day, don't you, those of you who have children? If you don't, I can guarantee, let me just make a prophecy. I don't know your family that well, but if you're not disciplining your children, your life is chaos. Because this is good for us. Listen, God's way is always the best way. It's always the blessed way. And so notice Paul's words. Let's see, where are we? Um, Notice uh, verse 22. Verse 22 of chapter 5. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Keep yourself pure. Um. This is important for us, Um, and and I'll come back to the reasons why, but let me just focus on keep yourself pure. So here Paul is telling Timothy, you got to deal with these elders, man. You just got to deal with them. There's a prescribed way to deal with them. You got to do it. You got to take whatever faithful elders you have and the faithful body, whoever is faithful, and you got to deal with these issues. Can you imagine being young Timothy and having to do that? It's hard. It's hard. And so Paul says, listen, don't just be concerned about those guys. Be concerned about yourself as well. And he's already said that. He told Timothy, be an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Now he's saying it again. Timothy, in all of this, keep yourself pure. Keep yourself pure. It's a high calling. And we look at this and, and we ask ourselves, okay, so how do we, how do we keep from, um, how do we keep from getting ourselves in this position? The simple answer to that is we obey Scripture. We obey Scripture. So Paul repeatedly says here that we are to, to deal with the sin. And notice, and notice what he says um, See, verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudice, doing nothing from partiality. Now, this is interesting. Okay, so he's just given us a hard thing to do, right? If an elder sins, rebuke him. If he doesn't repent, um, bring him before the congregation so everyone will fear. And in case there was any ambiguity about the seriousness of this, I charge you before God. What does that mean? Before God. I mean, this is a reminder that one is living and acting in the very presence of God. You live in the atmosphere of God. I mean, everywhere you turn, God is there. He's watching. He knows. And he is, among many things, he is the judge. Not only will all people in the congregation see, but God will see And before him, you will have to give an account, Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God, and look at this, and before Christ. So we're reminded that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. God is watching you, Timothy. I can't be there right now. He's off in Philippi or somewhere. 
Think he was in Philippi at this time? I can't be there, but God is watching, and Christ is watching, and the elect angels are watching. Say, what's the elect angels? It's the only time in the New Testament that term is used. The elect angels. It's not used anywhere else in the Bible, but here Paul contrasts them with the condemned angels in Jude, verse 6, and 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, the condemned angels. Paul wants Timothy and us to know how seriously God takes sin among the leadership in the church. We are not to make excuses for a leader's sin. We are not to show favoritism or partiality when a, a leader sins. This is the word of God regarding how the members of his house must live with one another in relation to their elders. And you know what? If you've ever been a part of a tightly knit group, you know how hard it is to deal with the sin of one because you're so close. And you know what? It's hard. It's hard in your family, right? It's hard in your extended family, your adult brothers and sisters. Hard. It's hard to do that. Um... And among the elders, these guys are laboring together, in some cases suffering together. In, in parts of the world, they're dying together. And when one of them sins, it's hard. And Paul is saying, I charge you before God and Christ and the elect angels, you better not show partiality. Even if one of your brothers in the ministry sins, you have to deal with it biblically. It's a hard word, isn't it? But it's wonderful because it protects the church from impurity and sin. And so he says, Timothy, not just them, but yourself. Keep yourself pure. Paul wanted Timothy to be more concerned about the qualities of his own character than that of others. And I think Timothy, too, uh, he took it seriously. And perhaps that's why Paul felt compelled to write 23, verse 23. Um, Okay, so you see all this stuff that Paul's laying on Timothy. And this is just one little section of the letter. It's been a hard letter from the very beginning. I mean, he's got to tell women to stop doing certain things and start doing other. I mean, that would just, I mean, that about sends you under the, the table. Um, and now he's got to confront the elders. Now he's, you know, it's hard. And so look at verse 23. It just seems like this is something that, that Paul forgot to say some in one of, the other, one of his other letters to Timothy. And, oh, you know, you're on the phone, you're talking to someone. Hey, by the way, before I forget, let me just tell you something that's unrelated. I'm not sure it's unrelated, though. Listen, verse 23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, isn't that, isn't that strange? I mean, it breaks the whole flow of the conversation here. This is a personal word to Timothy about his stomach and his frequent ailments. It may be that Timothy was so serious about keeping himself pure and above reproach that, um, that drinking only water was his way to keep himself from ever either being, uh, becoming enslaved to wine or being accused of being enslaved to wine or violating another person's conscience, offending a brother in Christ. And maybe he took that admonition of Paul so seriously in 1 Corinthians and in Romans, and in Proverbs, and other places, that, um, that he was only drinking water. Now, for some of you who only drink water, this is, this is not for you. You've got to understand, too, that, that the water in uh, ancient uh, Israel, and even in present Israel, if you go there to visit, you're supposed to take a, a bottle with a filter um, and filter everything, because the water is not good to drink. And so they would drink water that was mixed with wine. They called it mixed wine. And they would drink it for medicinal purposes. And Paul apparently realized that Timothy was, uh, was not at his best physically. And maybe the reason for that was his scrupulousness about only drinking water and never allowing himself to have even a hint that he was related to wine in an inappropriate manner. The word little here, a little wine, is perhaps here to make sure uh, Paul's readers would understand that he was speaking of wine as medicine, not as a beverage. Um, three other occurrences of wine in Paul's writing offer the same spirit of caution 
drinking wine, and I just want to be clear on this because I've been accused of saying that it's a sin to drink wine. Listen, that is not true. I've never said that. I've never meant it. If I said it, it was some kind of Freudian slip, and I don't even believe in Freud. But, because uh, <clears throat> I've never believed that. I personally don't drink wine. But I've never said, nor do I believe, that no one should ever drink wine. That's not the biblical parameter. But be careful. Be careful. I told you about the, the church planting book that uh, we were looking at, and the author said the number one sin among uh, modern church planters is drunkenness. Isn't that crazy? It's a serious problem even today. We are frequently cautioned about the possibility of being enslaved to wine. In any case, Paul is concerned about Timothy's health in the midst of all of this ministry. And so there's a little tender side of Paul. He's not all hard. He was trying to encourage him to cut back on the water a little bit and, and uh, drink some wine, Timothy, Timothy. And I've given all these cautions about drinking wine. For you, I say, brother, drink some wine. It'll be better for you than the water. And so after reading Paul's concern about the necessity of dealing with the elders, pastors who sin, we might ask, how can we prevent such a gut-wrenching, church-splitting calamity to happen in the church, in our church? How can we prevent that from happening? Look at verse 22, and I already read it. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands. Now, this is a unique Sunday because you're going to see the laying on of hands. We hardly ever do this, except when we're bringing on a, a, either an elder or, in this case, ordaining someone for gospel ministry. And so you're going to get to see that today. And it's going to be reminiscent of what happened in Paul's day with Timothy when he repeatedly talks about the day hands were laid on him as he started into his life of gospel ministry. And so how do we relate to the elders in the local church? We esteem them, we shield them. When necessary, we censure them. And number four, we assess them. Or you could say we examine them. It's a dangerous thing to put a man in leadership in the local church before we really know him. Those who make the mistake of putting one in too quickly will partake in his sin when he sins. I take that to mean those elders will be held accountable at some level before God for the sins of that brother in the church who should never have been made an elder to begin with. Men who aspire to the office of elder pastor must be examined. They must be examined. There must be sufficient time to assess their true character and godliness. It takes time to see a man's true relationship with his wife and his kids and the community and the church body and the leadership. To rush that process is to invite disaster. There are, there's a principle that helps me remember this, and here it is. And it's, it's not from me. I heard John MacArthur say it, so in the interest of full disclosure, here it is. Time and truth go hand in hand. Give it enough time, the truth will come out. Time and truth go hand in hand. Give it enough time, the truth will come out. Having said that, let's read verses 24 and 25. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment but the sins of others appear later. Hence, he's saying, don't lay hands on anyone too quickly because he may look good on the outside now, but give it time, and that will either be proven or disproven, but it needs, it needs time. Verse 25, the opposite is also true. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Uh, you may see a person who, um, who you're, you're, you're you know, and we've done this as elders. So, okay, so I'll give you a specific example. There's an elder right now at Living Hope Bible Church, our church plant in Mansfield. And uh, when we were looking for an elder to go out with Brent, we we're actually looking for two. When we were looking for uh, an elder to go, uh, oh, there was one man. Uh, who uh, uh, a couple of our guys, a couple of our elders said, he's the man. And I'd say, I don't think so. I don't think he's the guy. I think that guy would make a great deacon. By the way, I've told that guy all of this. And he was like, man, that's weird. Why would you tell me all of this? 
We'll have to humble you and encourage you at the same time. <laughs> but, uh, but originally we said, you know, he'd make a great deacon. I don't know. But he was in our leadership training, and in leadership training, you, you get to do some things, and, uh, and it may not feel like examination, but the elders, just watching, just watching. Um, and so some months went along, and we had a mission trip that needed leadership. And this brother has a full-time job. He's the vice president of a, of a very successful company. And he said, I'll take time off, and I'll do it. And we said, huh, well, great, you get the team. So he took the team. He went overseas. They had some problems over there. And he stepped in and fixed it. Caring for our church body, caring for our, she- for our sheep. One of the teachers that they were working with over there just really kind of blew it on the gospel. This brother went and confronted him. Actually, it was he and his daughter. His daughter was the one that brought the issue up. And you know, that did not go unnoticed, that this man, who if he's ever going to be an elder, he's got to have a good relationship with his kids. His daughter is saying, Dad, I don't think he's getting the gospel right. I mean, when he said this and that, and he said, let's go talk to him. We hear this report later on. And you know what happens to this guy's reputation? It starts going, up, up, up. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, look, so also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not can not remain hidden. He's talking about leadership. And listen, I've, man, been in the same church for all these years, and we've seen it again and again. The first guys that you're most attracted to are not always the guys who end up being the faithful leaders later on. And some of the guys that you would totally overlook, um, they rise to the surface and they become faithful teachers and maybe even faithful elders and maybe go off. We had one guy who became an elder and said, you know what, I had lost faith in the church and had, been gone, had gone to seminary for a while. Started coming to Calvary. Godly, godly man. He became an elder eventually, and, and, uh, and then one day he came and he said, you know what, my faith in the, in the church and the possibility that a church can run well has been restored, and so I'm leaving, <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have my own church, and he did, down in Crowley, and it's uh, Caleb Hound's dad. Um, this is how it works, beloved. How should you relate to the elders of your church? You should esteem them. You should. You should esteem them. You should help the elders to shield them. If necessary, you may have to be a part of censuring one of them. And all along the way, as we're seeing men come and go, we're watching and we're assessing. Now, I will tell you, last Saturday, we did a formal examination of Keith. And it was here in our our fellowship hall, if you missed that, I'm sorry, you were all invited, and uh, a number of people came, and uh, he has to stand and defend what he believes and his personal life uh, publicly and verbally, and Keith did an outstanding job, just absolutely outstanding job, and we praise the Lord. Then last week, we also voted, uh, the church body voted to, as the, as the elders recommended, that we pursue Keith uh, his ordination unto gospel ministry, not into eldership, not yet anyway, that'll probably come, but uh, ordination unto gospel ministry. And you all voted, yes, yes, we know Keith, we love Keith, we've seen him minister, he's been in this, well, not this pulpit, but the other one, and, uh, and stood on this platform and preached, and you all love his preaching, you've told me, and I do too. I love to be here when I'm not preaching, and, and Keith is, because I am I am wonderfully fed the scriptures when he teaches. And so this morning, we are going to formally do what was done for Timothy 2,000 years ago when the elders of his church laid hands on him and ordained him for ministry. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in just a minute. But let's pray. Lord, thank you for this, um, this word this morning. Some of it was hard. And um, it's, it's passages like this that are not as enjoyable to preach as others. And yet, this is your word. And I must stand here and say, thus saith the Lord. 
And we recognize as a body, Father, that your word is true and all of your judgments are perfect and your grace is abounding even to us who sin so much. Your grace abounds. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds so that therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So we praise you, Lord Jesus, for what you accomplished for us on the cross. We praise you that while there was a a righteousness that we desperately needed and didn't have and couldn't earn, yet you left heaven to come to fulfill all righteousness in a life of 33 years and then to die for our unrighteousness so that we could be saved. No, Father, if there's someone here who hasn't put their full trust in that, in Christ, as their only hope, oh, Father, I pray that today would be their day. Be glorified in this unusual time here now as we ordain Keith. Be glorified in that, Father, we pray.